From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Today's episode is slightly different. As the world responds to the George Floyd protests and white Australia is asked to confront its own record on police violence and racial inequality, Durrambul and South Sea Islander journalist Amy Maguire has written for the Saturday paper about the deaths inside. This episode is called Black Witness, White Witness. It was nearly nine minutes. Nine minutes that Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin kept his knee on the neck of George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American man, a father, even as he pled, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. The footage, shot by bystanders, has now been watched by millions of people. The footage, powerful, confronting and undeniable, has backed the testimony of the black witness, who has known intimately the reality of police brutality, while awakening the white witness, who is more likely to be believed. Protests continue across the United States, even in the face of mass arrests, tear gas and rubber bullets. The pressure has led to action. Four police officers have since been charged, and Chauvin has had his charges upgraded to second-degree murder. We have never seen this in Australia, where Aboriginal people continue to die on the floor of watch houses, in the back of paddy wagons, and in handcuffs locked to hospital beds. When Aboriginal people die in custody, there is a national silence. But it is not for lack of protest, nor because there is no black resistance in this country. When families hold rallies in capital cities, they are not well attended. The names of those lost are not repeated over and over so as to become ingrained in the national consciousness. Just as their names disappear in colonial reports, so do their stories and their acts of resistance and agency, as well as their diverse histories and their relational ties to community and country. They are seen as bodies, bodies that are not worthy of grieving, even as their families and Aboriginal people across the country continue to grieve for them. While Australians now engage in collective acts of witnessing for black deaths overseas, they remain apathetic to the black deaths in their own country. If we did see the same uproar for every black death in custody, for every Royal Commission recommendation that was not fulfilled, for every report that was ignored, would we have so many families still in mourning, still crying out for justice? Over the past week, there has been an acknowledgement, largely forced by Aboriginal people, that any form of solidarity must begin at home. There is a brutality evident in the statistics that show black jailing rates in parts of Australia are the highest in the world, and they have continued to grow. This isn't news to Aboriginal people, and it shouldn't be news to the rest of the country. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make up 27% of the national prison population, while we are only 2% of Australia's population. In the decade between 2006 to 2016, those rates jumped by 41%. And while the focus has often been on Aboriginal men, Australia has also been locking up Aboriginal women, most of them mothers, most of them victims of violence, at rates that beggar belief. Aboriginal women now make up 34% of the female prison population. Nearly three decades after the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody handed down its report, successive Australian governments have made no attempt to address its recommendations. With law and order policies electorally popular, they have only made it worse. The black deaths have not slowed. 
Since 1991, 432 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have lost their lives in custody. They died while denied their liberty, away from their families and children, and in many cases, their country. The statistics should solicit shock and outrage, but they also can flatten the complexity of this issue and overshadow the life stories of the people who lost their lives. Numbers conceal the full extent of the violence, just as official explanations for deaths, natural causes, have a way of rendering invisible the multiple forms of state-sanctioned violence that force Aboriginal people into jail in the first place. There is not always video footage of this violence. It is not always easily understood or identified, because to identify it, you must situate it within its historical context. But by reading the stories of these cases, by bearing witness to the deaths inside, we begin to see the full extent of police brutality in all of its forms. There was no video footage released of Wiradjuri woman and mother of four Rebecca Ma's final hours. News of her death was announced in a short police media statement that held few details. She was only 36 years old. At the inquest into her death, a statement made on behalf of her mother, Debbie Small, was read out. It spoke of Ma's love of her family and her determination to overcome the significant challenges that she faced. She was loved deeply in return, and her death was a great loss to those who knew her. Rebecca Ma was walking along a street in Cessnock in the New South Wales Hunter Valley in 2016, just after midnight when she was approached by a police fan in relation to a breach of bail. She had not breached bail, but police officers detained her regardless, using powers which allow police to detain an intoxicated person if there is no responsible person to take care of them. A quarter century after the Royal Commission had recommended the decriminalisation of public drunkenness, Miss Ma was detained for supposedly being drunk in public, but she had committed no crime. By 6am the next morning, she was pronounced dead. The media began to report on the case about a month after her death, with the disclaimer that hers was the first black death in a police cell in New South Wales in 16 years, the first since the custody notification service had been implemented. Under New South Wales legislation, police were required to call the Custody Notification Service, or the CNS, a 24-hour legal hotline staffed by the state's Aboriginal Legal Service. In Miss Ma's death, police didn't call this number. The narrative around this dominated the coverage, even before the inquest. The story became concentrated on police procedure rather than justice. The questions were predetermined and centred on one phone call. During the inquest, it emerged police had not even attempted to find Miss Ma's mother, a responsible person who could have taken care of her, as was required under the legislation. They had simply not been bothered. This devastating lack of care was again shown in the fact the police at the station had failed to conduct proper checks on Miss Ma, a fact the coroner established was because of a lack of concern for her welfare. The police had incorrectly believed Miss Ma was HIV positive. She was not. But this affected the way they dealt with her, including, as the coroner quoted, a failure to search Rebecca for fear of contracting an infectious disease and the failure to note on the whiteboard the warnings of Rebecca's risk of self-harm. Miss Ma was not drunk when she was picked up. Instead, she struggled with drug addiction. And because the police did not search her, a pill bottle she had on her was not taken away. She would die of mixed drug toxicity. The police failed to do their due diligence, leaving her in the cell to sleep it off. In the coroner's words, they saw their duty to simply accommodate Rebecca and not to care for her. They locked her up to contain her, to keep her out of sight. 
Perhaps the most dehumanising aspect of the police accounts, which spoke to a callous disregard of Miss Ma's life and her worth, was the conduct of one police officer, who, in the words of the coroner, mimicked Rebecca's stumbling in the police station as the behaviour of a chimpanzee. It was a highly racialized image which seemed to be inconsistent with the officers' claims they did not know Miss Ma was Aboriginal. Rather than care for her, they mocked her, and the next morning, after she died, it took them six hours to inform her mother. These are the indignities that Aboriginal people are subjected to, both in life and in death. There cannot be over 400 black deaths and no justice. There can't be 400 victims and no perpetrators. As Gomorrah law scholar and poet Alison Whitaker so astutely said this week, all of this leaves our public discourse full of black bodies, but curiously empty of people who put them there. The layers upon layers of state-sanctioned violence that led to Miss Ma's death are not as easily identifiable as the nine minutes that ended George Floyd's life. And yet the callous disregard shown by the police towards Miss Ma who was powerless and in need of help, is violence all the same. The officers who picked her up had a responsibility to care for her, to keep her safe, to protect her. Instead, she died in a police cell on their watch. This is police brutality. Miss Ma is not here, and the police officers responsible for that fact have not been held accountable. There has never been a conviction over an Aboriginal death in custody in this country. We have seen video footage of the brutalisation of black bodies and it has by and large failed to ignite outrage in wider Australia. In 2012, Aboriginal man Kumanjay Briscoe, 28, died in an Alice Springs watch house after being locked up for public drunkenness. Police said he was in protective custody. Just like Miss Ma, he had committed no crime. The footage played at the inquest into his death shows two police officers dragging Mr Briscoe along the ground by his arms. After being placed on a nearby bench, he gets up, severely intoxicated. Another police officer grabs him by the arm and slams him into the front desk. Three of them pick Briscoe up and take him to the cell, where they throw him face down on a discarded foam mattress on the floor. In the reception area, there is a noticeable patch of blood on the floor. While Mr Briscoe was in the cell, the police officer on duty failed to do a single welfare check. Instead, he surfed the internet and listened to his iPod. He ignored other prisoners who had tried to alert him as Mr Briscoe lost his life on the watch house floor. Just as there was no justice for Miss Ma, there was no justice for Mr Briscoe, and his case is not widely known. Two years later, in 2014, Yamaji woman Miss Jew was locked up for unpaid fines and placed in the South Headlong Watch House in Western Australia. She was in severe pain, which stemmed from an infection from a broken rib sustained in a family violence incident. Rather than help her, though, both health professionals and police repeatedly mocked her pain, claiming she was faking it. Over the course of three days, she slowly lost her life to sepsis and pneumonia, her grandmother, Carol Rowe, rang the watch house repeatedly to inquire about Miss Jew's welfare, but was told that she was fine. In the face of Australia's apathy and a recognition of the national silence that shrouds black deaths in custody, particularly the deaths of Aboriginal women, Miss Jew's family were forced to campaign across the country. They used their own resources to do this. 
The onus was on them to make Australia care. During the inquest, the family successfully petitioned the coroner to release the footage of Miss Jew's final moments, knowing the degree of violence and brutality it depicted should lead to outrage. The video, when released, showed Miss Jew being dragged limp out of the watch house and thrown in the back of the paddy wagon. She was dying and helpless and still was afforded no dignity. As the country entered Christmas holidays, the footage aired on mainstream television. The images are enduring. They have mobilised Aboriginal people particularly and did lead to greater awareness and a political push to change the laws on fine defaults. But Miss Jew's death was largely ignored by wider Australia. To bear witness, we must understand the reality of violence in this country and how police have been the wielders of it, the weapons to disperse, to contain and to kill Aboriginal people. Led by white officers, the Native Police established in New South Wales in 1848 before transitioning to Queensland control in 1859, where they reported directly to the Colonial Secretary in Brisbane, operated as a standing death squad for the next 50 years across the Queensland frontier, in the words of UTS researcher Paddy Gibson. Police were largely involved in Aboriginal life under the Protection Acts in the states and territories. In New South Wales, they were legislated under the State Act to issue, withhold and supply rations, determine whether a person could see a doctor, expel those deemed as troublemakers and remove Aboriginal children from their families, a practice that gave rise to the stolen generations. The violence of the police is part of our national story. The distinction between whose life is seen to matter and whose is not, and in which space a death is able to be grieved and mourned, is a distinction between those who have everything stolen and those who have profited from this theft. Last year, Aboriginal Australia mourned the deaths of Joyce Clark in Geraldton and Kumunjay Walker in Uindamu, both of whom had been shot by police. In each case, a police officer has been charged with murder. Neither led national news bulletins despite their obvious significance. But there is a reason why the violence inflicted upon black bodies in this country is not seen as shocking. It is normalised violence, the violence that we have come accustomed to seeing. Its deep roots stretch back generations. The violence inflicted by the state on black bodies is seen as inevitable. It has been legitimated, and part of this legitimising is the dehumanisation of Aboriginal people, the idea that because they were incarcerated, they are somehow responsible for their own deaths. This operates through the concealment of state-sanctioned violence throughout their entire lives, not only the events that led to their deaths in custody. In order to break this cycle, we must bear witness. We must mourn. We must take part in public displays of grieving. We must resist the disparaging images of Aboriginal people, which rely on hundreds of years of stereotypes designed to dehumanise, and we must assert our right to exist free of violence and brutality. We must understand how Australia has profited and has continued to profit from this violence. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. 
Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. Also in the news, tens of thousands of people protested across Australia on Saturday to oppose the deaths of Indigenous people in police custody. In Sydney, a last-minute decision in the New South Wales Court of Appeal meant that protesters were immune from prosecution for breaching public health orders. However, Victoria Police have said they will fine each of the organisers of the Melbourne protest. Meanwhile, in Minneapolis, City Council members have pledged to dismantle the city's police department. Nine of the council's 12 members appeared at a rally in a city park on Sunday afternoon local time and vowed to end the current system of policing in the city. They pledged to instead invest in a community-based public safety model. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.